September 16, 1922, New Brunswick, New Jersey. A man and his teenage girlfriend discover two bodies on a lover's lane near an abandoned farm. Shocking to say the least, but even more scandalous were the names attached to the corpses, the minister at the local Episcopal church and a lady of the choir. Their murders went unsolved and were swept under the carpet quickly by the church and a wealthy family. That is until a fledgling New York newspaper brought evidence forward to open the case again and sell papers. By the time the trial is over, this story will capture the attention of the entire country with its midnight arrests, lust-filled love letters, odd accusations, and even the testimony of some unlikely characters. This is the story of the Reverend Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills, the preacher, the choir singer, and the pig woman. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our friends in Nepal, of all places. Nepal. Yeah. Slaguta, Slaguta, Slaguta. Whenever I hear Nepal, I think of um, Eddie Murphy. Viva Nepal! <laughs> I know. Viva Nepal! <laughs> I, 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 I want the knife. I want the knife. And what was the name of that knife? Oh, gosh, I don't know. The Ajanti Dagger. That's right. That's right. That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wherever you're listening today, be sure to subscribe, like, rate, review. You can join the In-Laws and Outlaws. That's our closed Facebook group. And you can subscribe to our YouTube channel if you're a watcher and not just a listener. We're nearing 160. (laughs) (laughs) We're climbing. We are. We're not to that 2 million not to that 2 million listeners no, yet. So no. We're close, though. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> we do love you guys watching, though. Yeah. Well, I just want to start off by saying I love doing these older cases because they are so fascinating. Yeah. And I stumbled across this one because it's been 100 years. It is actually 100 years old. Oh, wow. Its 101st anniversary is this fall. Okay. And at the end of the story of the podcast, I'm going to give you some even more interesting facts. And one of them, at least as a writer of fiction, was very interesting to me. All right. I'm waiting with bated breath. (laughs) Before we get started, I want to thank some sources. The Daily Record, the Central New Jersey Home News, the Passaic Daily Herald, Contingent Magazine, the Yale Review, Wikipedia, USA Today, The New Yorker, NewJersey.com, The New York Times, The Norfolk Post, WeirdNewJersey.com, and The Corpses in the Cops, Understanding the Hall Mills Case by Ezra Fisher. Wow, that's a lot of research. There's a lot of information. It's 100 years old. Everybody's been pretty fascinated by this case. Well, you ready? I am. Okay, let's do it. Edward Wheeler Hall was born on June 12, 1881, in Brooklyn, New York. His parents were Edward and Fanny. 
He grew up in Brooklyn. He had an older sister, Theodora. Some of these names are great. Mm. Theodora. I just liked Fanny. Fanny. I know that's another good one, right? Yeah. But he was the only son of a poor family. He involved himself in the church a lot from a really early age. And as a boy, he became the head of the boys' choir at Grace Church in New York. Then he moved on to the Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute, where he graduated in 1898, winning a scholarship to Hobart College. Nice. Now, at Hobart, Edward was a, quote, rather wild youth, end (laughs) quote. (laughs) Yeah. Edward's particular brand of wildness apparently included a fair amount of drunkenness, (laughs) gambling, and companionship of all sorts with all sorts. Well, things haven't changed in a hundred and some years. (laughs) No. He dropped out of Hobart and entered the ministry. Oh, wow. His first placement was as the assistant pastor at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Okay. And two years later, in 1909, he got a promotion and moved to New Brunswick, New Jersey, where he took the job at the Church of St. John the Evangelist. He was moving up. He was moving up. Okay. Now, when he moved to New Brunswick to be the new pastor, he had to find a place to live. It was just him and his mother. His sister, Theodora, was married. His father had passed away in 1902. And these two rented rooms in a Victorian boarding house at 161 George Street, which was very close to the church. So handy, right? Yeah. Now, something to know about the New Brunswick area. There was a wealthy side of town where the Blue Bloods, including the Carpenter family, who had married into the Johnson & Johnson fortune, lived. And in fact, this is where the Douglas campus of Rutgers University is now located. So the Carpenter family lived right next to them? No, they're just it's just one of the big blue blood families, the Stevens, the Carpenters and the Johnsons. So the Carpenters were on top of the world then. <laughs> it's not spelled that way. OK, sorry. <laughs> it was lame. <laughs> but the other side of town was the sketchier neighborhood. And apparently that's even the case today. Yeah. The other side of town back then was made up of urban poor, those who had just made it off the boat at Ellis Island. And instead of settling in the city in Manhattan, they went by train an hour outside to New Jersey. Okay. Now, the Church of St. John the Evangelist was founded in 1861, and it still stands today really? near the corner of George Street and Commercial Avenue. Okay. And the church is actually the dividing point of the town between the haves and the have-nots. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. And the haves and the have-nots both attended this church. Okay. Now, Edward was thought of as a climber long before he found his way to New Brunswick, New Jersey, he liked moving up the ranks in the church and in society. And since he was a bachelor, if he was going to get hitched, he might as well marry up, right? Absolutely. Because at the time, a bachelor and a minister, that's a hot commodity. Hey, I married up. (laughs) Well, so did I. (laughs) But the single Christian women were coming out from all parts of town to lay (laughs) eyes on the new bachelor pastor. And one woman came from the swanky Christ Church to St. John's, Edwards Church, and one in particular started getting involved in church activities right away. And part of those activities included charming or wooing, (laughs) as I read, the new pastor. 
Reminds me of uh, Keeping the Faith with Ben Stiller. A, it's a little <laughs> bit like that. I mean, can't you just see these women like bringing in oh, the yeah. casseroles yeah. <laughs> and the cookies and the baked goods? Yeah. Hot pasta. Yes. <laughs> and plenty of women were hot on the trail of Edward. Plenty of women. But one had the advantage of being one of the wealthiest and most connected women in New Brunswick. And okay. her name was Frances Noel Stevens. Another fanny. No, she just goes by Francis. Oh, okay. But her mother was a carpenter. Okay. A C-A-R-P-E-N-D-E-R. Okay. Just so you don't get them mixed up, Rob, <laughs> with singing group. <laughs> now, Francis was born on June 13th in South Carolina in 1874, but came to New Brunswick, New Jersey, when she was just a baby. She had two older brothers, Willie or William and Henry, both older by two and four years. Okay. And she was single and she lived in the family home at 23 Nickel Avenue. She took care of her sick mother and her brother, Willie, who I read in more current accounts of the story, was that Willie was probably autistic. Okay. Like he could live alone and take care of himself, but mm -hmm. he was looked after by Francis. Gotcha. All the way back in 1909, Francis was worth about $2 million. Oh, wow. You want to take a guess how much that is today? Uh, $37,983 trillion. <laughs> well, inflation's not that bad, but it's close. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, roughly $67 million. Wow. Francis was one of the haves. Mm. She was not a have-not. Yeah. And she left her normal church, Christ Church, to come to St. John's. I mean, he's filling pews on Sunday because they all want a hot look at the new pastor. Yeah, yeah. And the courtship of Francis by Edward was pretty interesting. I mean, she's dating a man who'd been called the playboy of the pulpit. <laughs> Are you serious? I am as serious wow. as a heart attack. Wow. Go on, boy. Yeah. <laughs> praise the Lord. Yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Pass the collection plate. Wow. But Frances wasn't particularly beautiful, and she's seven years older than Edward. But she's got moolah. She's got some money. Yeah. Now, he's very outgoing and boisterous. He was a life of the party. She was quiet. Hmm. And there were lots of people who thought that this relationship was odd, but Frances threw herself into working many parts of the church. She was more than happy to do the Lord's work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he was more than happy to court her using romantic gestures to win her heart. Hmm. And probably her $67 million. Yeah, I'm sure that was, yeah, that didn't hurt. Yeah. In fact, many thought that the man of the cloth, the playboy of the pulpit, was just a good old-fashioned gold digger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These two married two years after meeting, and I read that because her brother Henry couldn't make it to the wedding, she had to be walked down the aisle by her mother. And this was very unconventional, mm. very unconventional for the time. And apparently this caused quite a stir. Really? Now, I just want to say, if this causes a stir in New Brunswick, New Jersey, hang on to your panties. <laughs> I'm hanging on to my panties. Hang on. After the wedding, Edward and his mother moved into the Stevens' grand home at 23 Nickel Avenue, and Edward and Francis, they started their life together. Okay. Now, meanwhile, on the other side of the church and the other side of the tracks lived Eleanor Reinhardt Mills. Eleanor was born in 1888, right there in New Brunswick. She hadn't gone very far. Eleanor was married to Jim Mills, and they have a daughter in 1906 when she's just 17. Jim is 28. Okay. 
Now, it's been said that it was a shotgun wedding. Don't know for sure because the sources from 101 years ago are sometimes nothing more than gossip that right. ends up in the newspapers. And buddy, let me tell you, there's going to be some gossiping going down in this town. <laughs> and two, during that time, I mean, getting married at 17 was not really uncommon. It wasn't. And yeah, life expectancy was much was much lower. Yeah. Now, Eleanor and Jim Mills, they live at 49 Carmen Street. Jim was once a cobbler, a shoemaker, Mm -hmm. but had become a factory worker. And Eleanor was a really smart lady. She loved to read. She and Jim would have a son in 1910. His name is Danny. And I read where Jim was sometimes called Simple Jim. (laughs) Not Simple Jack. I knew it. I knew it. Simple Jack. You make my eyes right. You make my eyes right. Yeah. (laughs) Eleanor is very pretty. She's small. She's petite. And again, like I said, she's smart. Right. And she's very outgoing. Mm -hmm. Eleanor was a dedicated member of the Church of St. John the Evangelist congregation. And she only lived a couple blocks away from the church. She loved to sing and had joined the choir when she was only 16 years old. Okay. Years later, when the new pastor comes to town, Eleanor was still singing her little heart out in church each Sunday. All right. But according to many sources, Eleanor used church for something else. Uh-oh. She found male companionship there and not the holy kind. Oh, really? <laughs> not the father, son, and holy ghost. <laughs> she had a few trysts with men in the church really? and the choir. Wow. But none of the extramarital affairs ever seemed to work out for her. Because, see, Eleanor's fed up with Jim. She was tired of being poor. She was tired of always being short on money, trying to make ends meet. And she had two kids to care for. Yeah. Right? Right. And as the years passed, Eleanor became more and more involved in the church, while Frances, Edward's new wife, backed away from the church. Okay. Now, lots of folks thought that when Frances stopped working all the church activities with her husband, the pastor, that something was afoot in the home mm. of Edward and Frances Hall. All right, gotcha. Frances and Edward were both living with their ailing mothers and Frances's brother, Willie. But Edward and Francis hadn't had a child, Hmm. no children. So I don't know if that's because there wasn't a whole lot going on between the sheets or if they couldn't conceive. But by the time Francis is 40 years old and Edward is 33, the chances of them having a family had dwindled a little bit. Yeah. I mean, especially during that period of time, because, you know, having a baby at 40. Listen, I my mom had me when she was 36. And at that time, that was sort of people kind of raised their eyebrows a little bit at 36. Yeah. And that was that was the late 50s, yeah. early 60s. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, So just to recap a little bit, Edward comes to New Brunswick in 1909. He marries Frances in 1911. And then seven years later, in late 1918 or early 1919, Eleanor started doing more than singing for the Right Reverend Edward Hall. Uh-oh. After meeting and knowing Eleanor through all her church activities and choir, Edward and Eleanor began an illicit love affair. Mm. Now, they're both unhappy in their marriages, and they're finding what they needed, apparently, in each other. Yeah. More than the collection plate. There's, <laughs> Sorry. Again, <laughs> there's more than the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost yeah. going on. Yeah. Now, by the time these two have been screwing around for a few months, Eleanor realizes that her children needed her less and less. And that meant she could spend more and more time with Edward. Mm. And also around this time, Francis and Edward's mama have a fallen out. And Miss Fanny Hall packs up her stuff, Edward's mom, 
She packs up and moves out. Yeet it on out of there. Now, it's a pretty posh living. I mean, they're servants. They lived in the big fancy wow. house on the hill. So whatever the reason, it had to be pretty bad for Edward's mom yeah. to leave. Yeah. Edward is very attracted to Eleanor because she's pretty and she's smart. And apparently she had a beautiful voice in the choir. <laughs> and as for Edward, well, I think Eleanor just liked him. He wasn't Jim and he was a powerful man in the church where she spent so much of her time. Right. He was status to someone who yeah. was born and grew up on the wrong side of town. Well, that's you know? what I was going to say. He's a status symbol. Yeah. Yeah. These two love the outdoors music and they liked to exchange books. Quote, I am sorry you bought me that spicy book. It fired my soul and wafted me into the spiritual world. Oh, goodness. End quote. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they were writing Southern romance back oh, then. Oh, my goodness. These two would mark spots in these books that they exchanged. Really? So the other would be sure to read it. And I actually got a little curious and I looked at that. Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence hadn't been published yet. <laughs> so I have no idea what books they're reading, but it sounds like it was the 1921 version of Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> well, I was going to say on page 21 when she revealed her ankle. Yeah, they. I think it's more than ankles they're revealing <laughs> in these books. <laughs> but the more these two got into each other, the more daring they became. And in 1920, Edward hires Jim, Eleanor's husband, as the sexton for the church, which is kind of like the custodian. He was supposed to keep the church buildings prepared for meetings and ring the church bells and dig the graves. Yeah. But he does this all because Jim wasn't making enough money to support the family. And Jim was going to move the whole family out of New Brunswick. Oh, wow. So Edward gave him a job in order to keep his lover in town. Ah, there was ulterior motives. Yeah. yeah. And when Eleanor had to have a minor kidney procedure, yeah. Edward paid for it. Really? And he was a little overly concerned with her well-being. And apparently he had like the flu at the time, had a fever, was feeling terrible. But he went to the hospital to check on her saying, quote, if she dies, then I shall kill myself, end quote. Wow. Pump the brakes, Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> She's not your wife. Yeah. yeah. Dude, relax. Yeah. Why don't you sit this one out? <laughs> Meanwhile, her husband, Jim, has vowed to pay back the pastor. And Frances, Edward's wife, sent flowers to Eleanor's bedside, <laughs> which tells me that early on, Frances didn't have a clue yeah. that Edward's knocking boots with the choir soprano. Yeah. Edward and Eleanor liked to go on long drives in the country, park and have a picnic. And this love affair has been going on. And these two are outwardly fond of each other right in front of God and everybody oh, and the entire congregation. There was no uh, there was no discreetness about this. No, I, I wrote in my notes. He's cheating more than the Chinese Olympic gymnastics team. <laughs> and if you don't get that reference, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that was good. They cheated a lot. Yeah. These two are even getting caught, like, constantly. Another member of the choir caught them behind the chancel, and Eleanor was sitting in Edward's lap with his arms around her, and she would laugh it off, and he pretended like it just never happened. Jeez. But people are talking. Oh, yeah. Of course they're talking. Especially at church. It's church. <laughs> I know. Now, Edward and Eleanor liked to write love letters to each other when they were apart. And it was getting tricky to get them to each other because they couldn't use a postman because they were afraid he'd tell everybody. Yeah. Like everybody doesn't know already. Yeah. yeah. But they had this little system. Whenever one of them wanted to leave a letter, they did it in a secret hidden spot in Edward's office. Mm. 
And here's how much they're seeing each other. At least four or five times a week. Wow. Edward would visit Eleanor at her home when Jim was away at work and her kids were at school. He always said it was for church business. (laughs) (laughs) Then on Friday nights, the church choir rehearsed and Edward attended all the choir rehearsals. And then after these two would steal away into Edward's study behind the altar. And one night they even went to New York City to see a Broadway show on 42nd Street. Good grief. They were arm in arm, hand in hand, and they thought they saw someone from the church. And then the church ladies are all a buzz. (laughs) But these two didn't hear any of it. It was all going on behind their backs. Of course, yeah. So it's 1922, apparently. You know, I would think that, you know, the gossip ring was huge back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There wasn't a National Enquirer or the Internet or anything. All they had was gossip. And church ladies. And church ladies. (laughs) With casseroles. (laughs) Now, a few weeks later, these two sneak away to Atlantic City, spending several days on the beach and in the ocean. And when they return, the church ladies are talking about it again. (laughs) Yeah. What's that thing from, uh, is it the music band? Pick a little, talk a little. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But these two act like they have no idea that everybody is on to them. Now, at the end of July, Edward had to go on vacation with his wife, Frances, for three weeks in Maine. That had to be horrible. But before he goes, he tells Eleanor that he's going to keep a love diary and he wants her to keep one, too. And when he returns in three weeks, they can exchange them. Yeah. Yeah. And they also plan to exchange letters. So here's one of them. Quote, dearest, will these days ever pass? Each one seems weeks long. Oh, how I long to be with you again. Dearest, we were made for each other's arms. That is our heaven, end quote. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's next level. Yeah. Now, while they're apart, they kind of decide that they're ready to leave everything and be together. And in one proposed option, Eleanor would live in an Episcopalian home until the time came to run away together, leaving New Brunswick. Okay. And I even read in one source that they had collected or saved, maybe out of the collection plate, like $40,000. Wow. And they talked about going to Germany or Japan. But when it came to the subject of divorce, Eleanor wanted to divorce Jim. But Edward did not want to divorce Francis. Of course not. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a nice cash cow. (laughs) Exactly. These two start to make plans to run away. And Edward always kept the church in perfect working order just in case another minister needed to step in if he disappeared Mm. and eleanor is ready to leave her children behind wow who leaves their kids behind and how old are the kids at this time they're probably they're like nine and twelve oh my god yeah wow but when edward and eleanor really wanted privacy and too many people were around they went to the old phillips farm the farm was on an abandoned lot on the other side of town away from where the halls or the mills happened to live okay The area was known as a lover's lane. And to get there, Edward and Eleanor had to either drive, which Edward needed to give his wife Frances a good reason to take the car, or take a streetcar. But even then, they'd have to walk through a park and make a couple of left turns to get there. It was a lot. But when they arrived there, there were lots of fields with trees and privacy. (laughs) A lot of camouflage. Yeah. (laughs) Now, by this time, Eleanor has stopped sleeping with her husband, Jim, and has moved into her daughter Charlotte's room. Also, by this time, she doesn't really hide the fact that she's got a man on the side, that she's got a side piece. Mm. 
Jim tells his wife that she, quote, does more for the church and Reverend Hall than you do for me, end quote. <laughs> and Buddy did just say a mouthful. Yeah, poor Jim. In early September of 1922, the church had a group of people from St. John's Church to an Episcopal home for the elderly. And this was the kind of trip that Frances would normally take with her husband, the pastor. But when Eleanor backs out and says she's not going, Edward backs out too and says, I'm not going, I'm too tired. (laughs) Then Eleanor's sister-in-law convinces her to go at the last minute. And so, of course, Edward tells Frances he's also changed his mind. You know, I think I rested up. I'm ready to go. I mean, they're not even, I think they think they're smart and they're just not. Yeah. The next morning, September 13th, 1922, Eleanor is waiting to be picked up at 9 a.m. By 1030, she calls the Hall's phone number at home. Frances answers very unemotionally and promises to come pick her up soon. And the reason they were late was because of a flat tire. Then Edward ripped his pants, climbing over a barbed wire fence. And when Eleanor saw this, she grabbed a needle and thread and started mending his pants on the spot. (laughs) And Francis was not happy about it. (laughs) You think? Yeah. And all I can think of is he's climbing over a barbed wire fence. He probably split the crotch of his pants. Right? That's usually where you get it when you're going over a fence. And she's just standing there (laughs) mending it. (laughs) So to speak. (laughs) Very close to the family jewels of the minister. Yeah. Yeah. As you might imagine, it was a quiet ride in the car after the day at the Episcopal (laughs) home. Man. Finally, Francis is starting to see something is going on between Eleanor and Edward. Yeah. Like, duh. The whole town's been talking about it. The entire congregation has been talking about it. But unfortunately, nobody ever says anything to the other person. It's true. It's true. But the church ladies are working overtime. The next day, September 14th, Edward's 10-year-old niece was also spending the day with him and Francis. Her name is also Francis. (laughs) Now, after some meetings, Edward decided to take his niece to St. Peter's Hospital because he was delivering flowers to patients. And as soon as he leaves the house, Eleanor calls and Francis answers. Oh, wait, I'm confused. Which Francis? <laughs> well, little Francis is at the hospital delivering flowers. This is sort of like, this is my brother, Daryl, and my other Another brother. Another brother, Daryl. <laughs> well, big Francis is the one who's angry. <laughs> okay. All right. And she answers the call when Eleanor calls. Hmm. So her husband's lover calls. Okay. Eleanor leaves this innocuous message. Then later that night, Edward is late for dinner and Frances isn't happy about it. She's really started to understand what's going on sure. between her husband of course. and the woman in the choir. Yeah, the spidey senses are starting to kick in. For sure. Now, that night when Edward made it home at 630, Frances says, you know, where have you been? What have you been doing? Mm-hmm. He like blows her off. Right. They eat dinner. And as soon as they're finishing up, Eleanor calls the house Again, good grief! Francis picks up the phone at the same time that one of the family servants also answers the phone, and so Francis just puts the receiver back, right? Mm-hmm. And the servant was already getting Edward, and Francis overhears him saying, "Quote: Yes, yes, yes. That is too bad. I was going down to the church a little later. Cannot we make arrangements for later? <sighs> say about a quarter after eight." Wow. End quote. Wow. And less than thirty minutes later. Edward Hall left their home at 23 Nickel Avenue, and Eleanor doesn't have a phone in her home. They're as poor as church mice. So she's calling from a candy store to their house. Mm. And earlier in the evening, apparently Eleanor confided to her daughter that she's read this article in the newspaper by a New York Episcopalian minister, 
And the article was all about divorce. And after Eleanor has served her husband and her kids dinner, she walks over to the church and places this article on Edward's desk. A not so subtle hint, I would say. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's okay if you want to divorce your wife. That's what she's saying. Yeah. When Eleanor leaves after calling the Halls home, she goes home and finds that her children have gone to their aunt's house. So she grabs her coat, her hat, and her scarf, and she walks out of the house. And as she's leaving, her husband Jim asks her where she's going, and she says, quote, follow me and find out, end quote. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) She whiz. Eleanor's got some balls on her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. At 8 p.m., Eleanor catches a streetcar at the corner of Carmen and George. She rides to the end of the line, getting off at Bookloo Park. She's the last passenger on the car, and she nods to the driver as she gets off. She starts walking to the old Phillips farm, where she's supposed to meet Edward. Okay. The Lover's Lane. Yeah. Now, on her walk, she's seen by a mother with her children. Okay. Fifteen minutes later, the Reverend Edward Hall passes the exact same mom and her kids. He pulls out his watch. He checks the time. It's past 8.30. He walks past the mom and her children, picking up the pace because he's late Sure. to make love to Eleanor. <laughs> he hurries to DeRussey's lane that will lead him to his lover. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile... Back at the Hall Mansion, Francis put their niece to bed around 9 p.m. and then played solitaire for two solid hours. Wow. Two hours of cards? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. By the time she put away her deck of cards, she's awfully worried about her husband. It's now 11 p.m. and Edward never came home past 10. Mm. Francis decides there's nothing she can do. So she goes to bed and she leaves a light on for her husband. She's like Motel 6. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> now, at Eleanor's home, her kids come back from the visit with their aunt around 10.30 p.m. And their father, Jim, puts them to bed. And then he walked to the church to look for his wife. Yeah. And after stopping at the corner store for a glass of soda water, he walks to the church, arriving at 11.05. But there was no one at the church. So as the sexton, he locked up the place and walked home, making it back around 1120, where he went straight to bed, leaving a light on for Eleanor. (laughs) Another Motel 6. (laughs) Yes. But then Jim wakes up about 2 a.m. He looks into his daughter Charlotte's room where Eleanor's supposed to be sleeping. And he he rouses his daughter and says, you know, where's your mom? And she just kind of mumbles back at him. At this point, Jim is worried. So he gets dressed. He walks back to the church in the middle of the night to look for his wife. But Eleanor wasn't there. Hmm. No one was. So he locks it up again and goes back home. Ten minutes later, at 2.10 a.m., Frances, Edward's wife, shows up at the church looking for her husband. (laughs) And with her is her brother, Willie. But Frances doesn't have a key to the church, which I thought was just the most oddest part of this. She doesn't have a key to the church. Yeah. And when she sees that it's all dark and locked up, she can only assume that Edward's not inside. Right. So Francis and Willie go to Jim and Eleanor's home. Francis is hoping to find her husband there. And when they arrive, the lights are off in that house. So she's thinking, well, Edward's not there because they're all asleep, including Eleanor. Hmm. The next morning, Edward and Eleanor both are still missing. And Francis and Jim actually meet up at the church, not knowing the other was coming there to look for their respective spouse. Right, right. (laughs) It's now Friday, September 15th, 9 a.m. 
Francis asks Jim, is anybody sick at your house? And he says, no, why? And she tells him, my husband has not been home all night. Oh, wow. And Jim quickly says, neither has my wife. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> then Jim asks, quote, do you think it's an elopement? End quote. Mm. And Francis replies, quote, no, it must be foul play. My husband has never stayed out all night. I'm going to the police, end quote. Mm. And then Jim has this other theory. Maybe the two of them went to Coney Island. <laughs> and Francis is thinking, Jim, you are knitting with only one needle. <laughs> she thinks he's an idiot. Yeah. And she says to him, quote, I think they're dead or they would have come home. Right. That's called foreshadowing. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> There it is. Uh Francis goes home and she calls the police. But here's what it is. She calls the police and asks if there are any casualties. She doesn't say anything about her husband. She just says, are there any dead bodies anywhere? Hmm. And when they tell her no, she hangs up and she doesn't give the police the names of the missing people. Really? Yeah. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't say my husband, Edward, and the choir singer, Eleanor Mills, are missing. Yeah. After her church run with Jim, Francis went home for the rest of the day. Jim would visit her three times during the day to see if there was any news of Eleanor or Edward. And after visiting at noon and five, he made his third and last trip up to 23 Nickel Avenue at 8 p.m. There he saw Francis sitting alone on her front porch and he poured out his feelings. Quote, Mrs. Hall, I don't know what to make of this. I'm just lost at sea on it, end quote. (laughs) And Francis, not to be outdone, replied with her own metaphor, quote, I am looking at a blank wall before me. Wow. Quote. Okay. They chatted, but nobody's got a clue where their missing spouse is. And when Jim is leaving, he said, quote, I just don't know what to make of it, Mrs. Hall. And she repeated again, quote, they must be dead or they would come home, end quote. Wow. The next morning, September 16th, a man and a young woman walked hand in hand to Duressi's Lane. Raymond Schneider is a guy in his early 20s, and his 15-year-old sometimes girlfriend was with him, Pearl Balmer. Now, Raymond was a young man who apparently had a hard time keeping a job, and Pearl was the daughter of a saloon owner, which was now just a pool hall because Prohibition is in full swing. Sure, yeah. So these two would take different routes each time to the lover's lane, and they would have sex in different areas, too. Hmm. And on their path this morning, Pearl says to Raymond something to the effect of, look, there's a girl and a fella sleeping. (laughs) Now, Raymond knows what people come to this area to do. They're there to knock boots and not be seen. So he's like, I have no desire (laughs) to look over there because I certainly don't want anybody looking at us doing what we're about to do. So after these two plant the parsnips or whittle the love branch, they're walking back. And Pearl says that the girl and the fellow are still in the same spot and still in the same position. And Pearl wants to see what's going on. So she walks to them. She gets closer and she turns around and shouts back at Raymond, quote, just a minute. The people ain't a breathing. End quote. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. When Raymond sees the dead bodies, he says, quote. Let's get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> End quote. You think? <laughs> These two stop at the first building they come to. It's the home of Edward Stryker. They're reporting what they saw, and they call the New Brunswick Police Department. Now, get this. 
Edward Garrigan is the officer who's coming out to take a look at these dead bodies. And he hitches a ride from Mr. George Cathers, who just happened to be passing by. And on their way, they pick up another police officer. <laughs> like, they don't have their own car? Oh I mean, God. what is that? Yeah, this is, yeah. Be- this is long before Uber. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess before the police officers had their own cars. I guess. Yeah. They just he's hit they're hitching a ride to the crime scene. But were That's they, what's happening. Were they beat cops? I mean, if they were just on the street, you know, there were a lot of walking cops. He had time. to be in the station to get the phone call. No, it's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't know. That's weird. Anyway. These Keystone cops, and that's really the truth. They get to Lever's Lane, and what they find is the right Reverend Edward Hull, the playboy of the pulpit, along with his mistress, Eleanor Mills. They've both been shot in the head with a thirty-two caliber pistol. Wow. Edward was shot once. The bullet entered his head over his right ear and exited through the back of his neck. Mm. Eleanor had been shot three times, under the right eye, over the right temple and over the right ear, and her throat had been slashed so deep that her spinal cord was visible, her vocal cords were severed, and her tongue had been removed. Wow. Yeah. So maybe a little more anger in the killing of Eleanor? No, no, what makes you think that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I suppose they were making a point with her throat as she was the Reverend's favorite soprano singer. Yeah. Yeah, taking her tongue and everything. Yeah. Eleanor's body had maggots, meaning they had been dead longer than 24 hours. And these two bodies are positioned side by side after they're murdered. They're under a crabapple tree and their feet are facing toward the tree. Eleanor was wearing a blue dress with red polka dots. She had a brown scarf around her neck, maybe hiding it, maybe holding it together. Mm -hmm. Don't know. Edward was wearing a dark gray suit, a white shirt with a stiff white collar and a white tie. And the gold watch that he always wore was missing. And there was a hat over his face, like he was shielding himself from the from the sunshine. You know, like if you're taking a yes. nap and you yeah. prop your hat over your face, that's what it was. Wow. So these two are posed after death to suggest they were intimate with each other. His arm was under her head wow. and her hand was on his knee. And just in case you might mistake them for someone else, the killer or killers had conveniently propped the reverend's business card on the sole of his shoe. Oh, man. And sprinkled between these two are the love letters they'd been sending back and forth for two years. Wow. And apparently some of them are pretty steep. (laughs) Quote, Sweetheart, my true heart, I know there are girls with more shapely bodies, but I'm not caring what they have. I have the greatest part of all blessings, a noble man's deep, true, eternal love. How impatient I am and will be. I want to look up into your dear face for hours as you touch my body close, end quote. Wow. Quote, oh, honey, I am fiery today, burning, flaming love. The Lord is always near in whatever we do, even in physical closeness, for we know he meant for his children to taste deeply of all things, end quote. Jeez. <laughs> Eleanor's pet name for Edward was Babykins. Babykins? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. <laughs> his letters to her were, quote, darling wonder heart, I just want to crush you for two hours. Ooh. Two hours, dude, wow. too. Wow. I want to see you Friday night alone by our road where we can let out unrestrained that universe of joy and happiness we call ours, end quote. Gee whiz. He signed all his letters DTL, <laughs> which I just thought of DTF, <laughs> but it stands for Diner Trau Liebhauer, gotcha. which is German for your true lover. Wow. 
Now, these two compared their romance to prayer, but I'm pretty sure that number seven of the Ten Commandments is something about not committing adultery. So I don't know if the reverend missed that day at seminary school because he's off playing hide the bishop or in this case, hide the pastor with the lady from the church choir. But these two Keystone cops who hitched a ride to the crime scene are going to cock this right on up from the get go. Within minutes, someone from the Daily Home News, a New Brunswick newspaper, is there and the police let him and other people just walk around in the middle of the crime scene. What? And when other members of the press arrive, they're taking evidence from the scene. Everybody wanted one of the steamy love letters for their paper. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's a circus. The whole place is contaminated. And the police even allow members of the press to touch the calling card with Edward's name on it propped up against the sole of his shoe. Well, forget those fingerprints. I mean, it's crazy. Then these bodies are autopsied. And when that happens, Frances wants confirmation. It's her husband that's dead, and she has another doctor autopsy both bodies. He's checking to see if Eleanor was pregnant. Oh. Mm-hmm. And the undertaker is telling both families, look it, we need to get them in the ground because they were dead and out in the elements for days, yeah. and it, it's time. It's getting bad. They're, they're a little gamey now. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the town of New Brunswick was chock-a-block full of reporters, quote, all of the editors with noses for news smelling the potentialities of this case from hundreds and thousands of miles distant were pouring their representatives into town. (laughs) It was like a rush to the gold fields, end quote. Yeah, big time. (laughs) Jeez. It's kind of like the scene from uh, Airplane. Yeah. When the reporters, they all run into the phone booths. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) no, wait. That scene is coming. Just wait. Just wait. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Frances Edwards' widow stays in the house. She only showed her face when it was time for Edwards' funeral. And you you can't really blame her for that. That's kind of natural. She leaned heavily into her brother, Henry, who traveled from his summer home in Lavalette, New Jersey. Frances wore a black veil over her face. Someone saw a scratch on her face under the veil at the funeral, and the newspapers went wild with this information. Now, Jim, Eleanor's husband, didn't have wealth protecting him, and he had to go to work every day to support his family, and he is constantly hounded by reporters. Mm. But the police, the Keystone Cops, this investigation was a big one. And the New Brunswick and the Somerset Police Forces were both on the case because the bodies were found technically in Somerset County. And the problem was neither of these authorities, neither one knew who was running the show. Mm. They were killed in Somerset, but they were from New Brunswick. And Francis's family is very prominent in New Brunswick. But the law is that it's where they're killed, not where they lived. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Something the two police forces could agree upon was that these two were killed in the fields near the crabapple tree where they were found, but they weren't murdered at the tree. They were placed there. Okay. Only four days later, two men claimed that they had found evidence in the form of a handkerchief that would prove definitively that the murder took place five miles away in the fields owned by the Carpenter family, Mm. relatives of Francis Stevens Hall. Okay. Make of that what you will. The plot thickens. Yeah. They re-examined witnesses that they had already spoken to. They questioned Jim Mills and Frances Hall and her brother Willie. They were gentle with Frances, but they badgered Willie, hoping that his autism 
would allow him to not hold up under this harsh questioning. Hmm. Because they're thinking if he's lying, we can get him to break. And instead of a confession, they got a surprisingly well put together story, which never varied. No matter how much they pressured Willie, he said the same thing over and over again. They did the same thing when interrogating Jim Mills, Eleanor's husband. They picked him up for interviews at all times of the day and let him go only when they were ready. And fortunately for Jim, his simple alibi stood up to their constant questioning. The New York Times, which had always been nice to Frances and her family, after all, they were wealthy, connected to the Johnson & Johnson Company. They reported on October 14th, 1922, that, quote, the atmosphere of New Brunswick is charged with every sort of rumor that political pressure, money, and social prestige have been made use of by Mrs. Hall and her family to hinder and delay the administration of justice in this case. The walls are closing in. Yeah. Yeah. In truth, the disorganization and delay is due to the bungling stupidity of these (laughs) officials of the two counties. Yeah. The New York Daily News said, quote, Powerful influences were able for three weeks to divert the attention of the detectives and other officials to channels which led nowhere in this murder investigation, end quote. And of course, because everybody knew these two had been together for a while, there was really only two people who had motive, Francis and Jim. But only one of them had the means, Francis. So are the cops picking up on this? Well, they are, but this is a powerful family gotcha. with deep ties. Yeah. Politics run deep. Yeah. A whole lot hasn't changed yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in 101 years, I was right? going to say, what year is this? Yeah. Well, yeah. 1922. Yeah. The police also went after Raymond Schneider, the young guy who, along with Pearl, found the bodies of Edward and Eleanor. Mm -hmm. And when he couldn't satisfy the police, after hours of questioning, he gave them the name of Clifford Hayes. Okay. And on Monday, October 9th, the police closed the case saying that Clifford Hayes, age 19, would be charged with the murder of Edward and Eleanor in a case of mistaken identity. Oh, wow. And the prosecutor said that Clifford thought that the woman was actually Pearl Beamer, a girl that Clifford was in love with, who coincidentally had gone to Lover's Lane to have sex with Raymond Schneider. Uh. And Clifford would be charged with the murder, and Raymond would be held as a material witness. Wow. Now, before this confession... Neither had any knowledge of the crime other than Raymond and Pearl stumbling into the bodies. And they'll never address the fact that Eleanor's throat was cut or that her love letters were placed between them. Right. Because somebody had to be in possession of those letters to leave them. Right. And don't forget the bodies were posed. So it can't be mistaken identity, right? Right. If they've got love letters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're just trying to make it go away. Jim, Eleanor's husband, was standing his ground that his wife and the Reverend Edward Hall were not having an affair. And even though Frances didn't do any interviews or speak with anybody, her friend, Miss Sally Peters, came out of the church saying, quote, isn't it just wonderful, end quote, of the crime being solved? (laughs) Okay. Not so fast. Yeah, I was going to say, this this can't be the end of the story. Yeah. Yeah. This whole theory collapsed three days after it began when Raymond Schneider admitted to perjury and withdrew his accusation and his signed statement. Wow. Now, up to this point, Francis and her family have kept a very low profile. And because they have money, the police has been leaving them alone. Mm -hmm. In 1922, Francis asked rhetorically, quote, Do you think any member of my family has had a hand in this? We are of the fine people. This was a low, brutal crime, and none of us would have had a hand in any of it, end quote. So not only was Francis one of the most likely suspects, 
wife of the deceased, with no real alibi, but she's not acting like a grieving widow. Yeah. Well, she's not very sad. Yeah. Nobody ever saw her be sad. Now, I see, she, you know, she wore a veil at the funeral. Yeah, but was it to cover up the scratch? Was it to cover up the scratch? Yeah. Was it just to cover her face? Yeah. The New York Times ridiculed her attitude towards her dead husband on October 18th, reprinting Jim Mills commenting that, quote, Mrs. Hall had better get a new pair of glasses, end quote. <laughs> the walls are getting even closer. On October 24th, the New York Daily News ran a story citing the opinion of five famed sleuths, the first two of whom suggested that investigators, quote, look for a woman between the age of 45 and 55 who had undergone a natural physical change, which had increased her jealousy of Mrs. Mills to the killing point, end quote. Wow. <laughs> and, quote, check up on the telephone calls at the whole home four months back, end quote. Uh-oh. Now, even the New York Times, Francis Hall's newspaper of choice started running stories that pointed towards Francis as the killer and her brothers and possibly her cousin as accomplices. One unsubstantiated story printed on November 2nd told of a chance encounter between some officials photographing the crime scene who were interrupted by a well-dressed woman who claimed to be the mayor's wife. She told the men that it was too late for pictures that, quote, the Stevenses said they could get away with anything in this town except murder. It looks as if they got away with it this time, end quote. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Now, by the time the case against Frances Hall and her two brothers is finally brought in front of a Somerset grand jury, there was so much doubt over whether or not she'd done anything wrong, and if she did, whether or not she'd be getting away with it. Hmm. Finally, on the morning of October 23rd, 1922, the New Jersey Supreme Court took the case out of the prosecutor's hands and put it into the hands of Wilbur Mott, the Essex County prosecutor. Okay. Now, the first thing Wilbur did was to interview a woman who apparently tried repeatedly to get police to listen to her, and her name was Jane Gibson. Okay. Jane was a 50-year-old woman who lived on a farm close to the spot where the bodies were found. She lived with her 21-year-old son, William, who helped her raise her crops and her 48 Poland-China hogs. <laughs> wow. Okay. And just in case you're wondering, the Poland-China hog is an American domestic breed of pig. It was first bred in Warren County in Ohio, right outside of Cincinnati. Okay. Its origins lie in a small number of pigs of Chinese type bought in 1816, which were a crossbred with a variety of breeds of European origin, including the Berkshire. And that started right outside of Cincy. Right outside of Cincy. Wow. It was bred as a lard pig and is among the largest of all pig breeds. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Males can be as big as 640 pounds Good or 290 great. kilograms. Wow. That's a big pig. <laughs> That's a huge pig. Yeah, we had a pig farm that was, I lived down the country growing up, and we had a pig farm just a few miles away from us. And whenever we'd get wind oh. <laughs> coming from the south, Lord have mercy. Yeah, I've lived on a farm too. And when it would like <laughs> waft down, I would be like, oh, the, Ooh, the pig farm. And somebody would always go, That's dairy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's the dairy farm. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jane didn't have a husband. Her personal history was very sketchy. Jane might have been born in Kentucky and might have graduated from a seminary or college in the South. She said that she had once been connected to a circus in some capacity, wow. and she had traveled all over the world. 
She also said that her husband, Mr. Gibson, a clergyman, died 17 years ago. Okay. Now, Jane Gibson, the, the pig woman, there was some confusion about her husband or husbands because she was technically, according to records, the wife of a Mr. William H. Easton, a New Brunswick toolmaker with whom she did not live. Hmm. And when she's questioned on this one, she casually changes her story and says the previous owner of her farm was called Gibson, and she just found it easier to use that name. Yeah. And she might have been born in Kentucky, and she might have been part of a circus. Aren't we all, <laughs> if you're born in Kentucky, part of a circus? Yeah. I don't know. Oh, well. But believe it or not, her story about the murder of Edward and Eleanor was even crazier than her life story. Jane will be referred to in the hereafter in the newspapers as the, the pig, pig woman. woman. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Jane said that on the night of September 14th, she heard what she thought was a trespasser on her farm and thinking that it might be one of the, quote, foreigners, end quote, who were in the habit of stealing her crops. She saddled her favorite mule, Jenny, <laughs> and set out in hot pursuit. <laughs> this is, okay, keep going. I'm telling you. <laughs> She lost her way in the dark and decided to go around the old Phillips farm. She was going to cut them off at the pass. Sure. And then she hears voices. So she and Jenny, the mule, stop and get quiet. She hears male and female voices that were fighting. And sometime between 9 and 10 p.m., the voices shifted from a quarrel to a yelling match, followed by four shots that rang out in the night. Wow. Jane, the pig woman, said that she saw a man fall, followed by the body of a woman. In the light of a car, which turned into the lane at this exact moment, Jane saw a woman in a gray polo coat and a man with, quote, bushy hair and African features, end quote. Wow. Now, you'd think this kerfuffle would make Jenny, the pig woman, panic. Yeah. She was witnessing two murders. But Jane was completely calm. Hmm. And her mule, Jenny, on the other hand, was panicked. So they hightailed it back to the farm. But in the midst of this chaos, Jenny drops a shoe. Quote, during this graceful exit, the pig woman in the great tradition of Jason of the Argonauts and Cinderella lost a single shoe. End quote. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Lots of poetic yeah. writing prose in the newspapers. Then. We've lost that. Yeah. She doesn't apparently realize that she's lost this shoe until sometime later. Don't know how that's possible, <laughs> but it's later in the night. And that's when she goes out into the night once again with her favorite mule to look for it. And while she's out trying to find her glass slipper, <laughs> she goes back to where she heard the shots and saw the car headlights. And she sees, quote, a large white haired woman weeping over the bodies of the dead, end quote. Hmm. Now, who? is young and who is old because yeah. i can tell you right now francis has gray hair yeah wilbur mott who has taken over this prosecution will base his case against francis stephen hall and her brothers william stevens and henry stevens on the testimony <laughs> of the pig woman and he presented it all to the somerset grand jury on the morning of november 20th 1922 okay francis hall and her brothers were worried but extremely confident when asked about her chances in the grand jury setting, Francis said to a group of reporters, quote, doesn't a person's past count for anything? I have been something of a figure in this community. I have been honest and honorable. Why should I not be believed? End quote. Hmm. Her brother, Henry, was equally confident. 
Quote, exactly, exactly, he <laughs> cried out. <laughs> now, let me ask you something. Was Henry, does he have bushy hair and the description that- Willie does. Hang on. Okay. All yeah, right. one of her brothers actually does. All right. But when Henry yells out exactly, exactly, his wife said, quote, it wouldn't worry me a minute if Henry were arrested. In fact, we would welcome it because his arrest would mean his eventual elimination from the case, end quote. Mm. Even Eleanor Mills' sister was of the mind that, quote, if they should arrest Mrs. Hall, she would never have to worry, end quote. Really? Yeah. Okay. Wonder why. Yeah. The prosecution suggested that Willie Stevens— Francis's cousin and Henry Stevens, her brother, mm -hmm. were present at the time of the murder okay. and that one of them was actually the murderer. And they concentrated their case on Francis because she had the strongest motive and they had the most direct and circumstantial evidence against her. Sure. Now, the grand jury proceedings were a carnival. The attempt to keep the actual proceedings private may have been successful, but the gossiping crowd of the reporters and sightseers easily picked up what was going on, right. according to witnesses, because they're accosting them as they leave the sure, courtroom. Sure, sure. Because remember, this is a grand jury, and it's it's private. It's closed. Right. And their role is just to decide if there's enough evidence for the prosecution right. to go forward. That's yeah, what a grand jury does. November 28th was by far the most dramatic day of the grand jury. It was supposed to be the final day. Frances Hall waited outside the large doors of the grand jury's chamber. She waived the immunity from being asked to testify, which was hers by law. Her position at the door of the chamber put Frances right in the path of the pig woman, Miss Jane Gibson, <laughs> when she goes into the room to give her eyewitness account. Okay. Frances was just waiting to see whether she would be indicted or not. And at 4.30 p.m., the grand jury announced their decision. But Frances Hall, quote, displayed no emotion. She just walked away, a silent, black-clad figure with her head held high, end quote. There would be no indictment of Frances or her brothers really? or her cousin. Wow. Case closed. They don't have anybody to, okay, whatever. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, case closed. Yeah. The case isn't closed. Okay. I'm not done yet. All right. Keep going. <laughs> After this, the widow Frances Stevens Hall booked passage to Europe. <laughs> She's leaving town with her bestie, Sally Peters. Her brothers left town as well. Henry went to his beach home and Willie to his home in Florida. Frances came back in the spring of 1924, but then she left again because there were these rumors that she had married a Cornell professor. Hmm. She came back again in 1925, and this time she stayed. Okay. Now, that might have been the end of this story. Like I just said, it's not. Okay. Philip Payne, the managing editor of the New York Mirror, a tabloid established by William Randolph Hearst mm. in 1924, he, he established this paper to compete with the New York Daily News. And he was obsessed with this story and this unsolved crime. Right. This case is like the Alec Murtaugh case, yeah. but in 1922. Okay. And the editor, Philip Payne, he was always looking for ways to resuscitate the nation's <laughs> obsession with the unsolved Hall Mills murder case. And finally, he found it on July 3rd, 1926. Arthur S. Reel filed an annulment petition in the Court of Chancery, Trenton, New Jersey. Arthur was seeking a divorce from Louise Geist Reel, who in 1922 had been one of the two Hall family servants. The annulment petition contained many accusations that Reel's wife knew much more about the murders than she had admitted really? during the police and grand jury. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
While she's drunk, she apparently tells her husband that Francis had paid her $5,000 in hush money. Wow. That would be about $84,000 in 2023. So nothing to scoff at, right? The newspaper, The Mirror, immediately demanded that the case be reopened and that a new investigation with Francis Hall as the key suspect be launched. Mm. And this was some of the crazy stuff that was happening. The Daily News staged a seance using a fake medium. The Mirror sent its own reporter to New Brunswick and the writer unearthed new witnesses. Ultimately, all the newspaper pressure led in 1926 to a trial. It was a media circus, the biggest until the Lindbergh baby is going to be kidnapped 10 years later. At midnight on Wednesday, July 28, 1926, policemen arrest Francis Hall on two charges, one of having murdered her husband and one of murdering his mistress. She was brought to the Somerset County Jail where she spent two days in one of six detention cells that were reserved for women. Mm. And two days later, she was freed on $15,000 bail. Okay. Now, this time, the Somerset County Grand Jury had no qualms about indicting the Stevens Hall clan, and a trial date was set for November 3rd, 1926. As the opening day of the trial got closer, the little town of Somerville was about to get busy. (laughs) Reporters bought out all the spare rooms available in town, and for once in the history of New Jersey, it was cheaper to take a room in New York City and commute (laughs) to Somerville. Wow. When you're planning your next vacation. Yeah, yeah, don't do it there because you can't get a room. The courthouse held 275 spectators, had its capacity changed to 375, and 300 reporters from around the world showed up. Only 100 seats would be given to the press, and the rest would have to wait outside for news. Wow. The New York Times hired four court reporters to keep up with the proceedings. Good night. It took 28 phone operators and four mimeograph machines to provide enough of what we'd call today bandwidth to get all the stories out. Wow. Slow news day. The first live broadcast of a trial was planned by a New York radio station, which had placed a microphone in a nearby building and hired men to run back and forth, relaying the news of the courtroom to the microphone. So they'd hear it and then they'd take off running and then they would like put it into the microphone. (laughs) I'm telling you, this was wild. It was wild. On November 3rd, 1926, four years, one month and 28 days after Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills were murdered, the trial begins. Dun, dun, dun. Prosecutor Alexander Simpson was later to say in summation of his case, quote, The most wonderful thing in this whole prosecution is this, that after four years and two months, wealth is on trial for murder, mm. end quote. Okay. And here are the suspects. Henry Carpenter. Henry was a cousin of Francis and her brothers, whose mother was a carpenter. He worked as a Wall Street stockbroker. And although he was an initial suspect, he was never brought to trial. Okay. Okay. Henry Stevens, Francis's brother. He was a retired exhibition marksman and lived in Lavalette, New Jersey. The prosecution contended that he fired the shots. Henry testified that he was fishing miles away from the murder on the night of the killing And three witnesses corroborated that testimony. They corroborated that story. Yeah, he was there fishing. William Carpenter Stevens, Willie, he actually owned a 32 caliber pistol like the one used in the murder. Mm. Although the firing mechanism was supposed to have been filed down so that he couldn't hurt himself with it. And in the prosecution scenario, he provided the weapon and his fingerprint was found on a calling card left at the scene of the crime. Whoa. 
And Edward's wife, Frances. Frances had the best defense team money could buy. I'm sure. But they couldn't keep her from going to trial. And the plan of the prosecution was again to hang their whole case on the testimony of the pig woman, <laughs> Jane Gibson. Wow. She's a star witness, and Jane opened the courtroom proceedings by fainting. <laughs> <laughs> nice. There you go. <laughs> if all else fails, just faint. Just faint. Yeah. She was in court on November 4th, the second day of the trial, but collapsed when she saw her mother was in the courtroom. Mm. The following day, Prosecutor Simpson announced that Mrs. Gibson, the pig lady, was dying and asked for the court to move to the hospital where she was being held really? to take her testimony. Wow. And the judge thought about it. And after visiting the hospital himself, he goes, that's, that's a no-go. No, 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 no. Why? Well, Jane Gibson, the pig woman, if she was going to testify, she had to make it to the courtroom if she wished to be heard. Okay. That's what the judge said. Right. Now, loads of people thought Jane was faking her condition for various reasons, to avoid testifying, to make her testimony more dramatic. Right. But she really was sick. Okay. And when she finally testified, she had to be carried into the courtroom on a stretcher and placed in a hospital bed. And she testified from the bed in the courtroom with a nurse and doctor in tow. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty, uh, pretty dramatic. It's very dramatic. The defense put Jane's mother in the front row with instructions to, quote, sit there and don't let anybody move you. Watch her as she testifies. That's all, end quote. Okay. And the 76-year-old woman would sit in the first row directly in front of the iron hospital bed her daughter's laying in. And she muttered the words over and over again, quote, she's a liar. <laughs> she's a liar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jeez. Now, maybe they thought seeing her mom would again cause Jane to faint or not be able to testify. But Jane made the best of a bad situation and, quote, performed like the old circus hand she was, end quote. <laughs> oh, man. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make it up. You can't make it up. At the end of her cross-examination by the defense, the pig woman Jane was transferred from the hospital bed she'd been lying on to a stretcher. She, quote, Rose on one elbow and pointed a trembling finger at the three defendants, Francis, her brother Willie, and her brother Henry, and gasped, quote, I have told the truth, so help me God, and you know I've told the truth, end quote. Wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty dramatic. Now, the pig woman's neighbors took the stand to swear under oath that she was the biggest liar they'd ever <laughs> met. And four years after the murder, the pig woman's recollection of the crime had somehow become much more detailed than they had been at the time of the original investigation. And conveniently, her testimony began to sound more and more like the scenario the crime was put forth by the tabloid newspapers and the prosecution. Gotcha. Now, then the servant who was paid off, she testified that her ex-husband was up in the night, that she was never paid off. But the prosecution used all sorts of odd tactics, and one of the most interesting surrounded Willie Stevens, his mental capacity and his race. This is exactly what you were talking about. Okay. Willie, as one of the key defendants, took the stand the fourth week of the trial. Now, four years earlier, Willie did a great job with the tough questions that they threw at him by the police. He never gave in to the pressure. He never changed his story. Hmm. But the prosecution star witness, the pig woman, Jane, always said that she saw a man who looked like an African-American at the scene of the crime. 
And you fit that together with her identification of Francis Hall. It was always assumed that Willie was the man. Now, Willie did not look African-American at all, but Willie had bushy black hair, mm. a thick mustache, and eyebrows. There you go. And that's what they're saying that the pig woman Jane saw. That's what she saw. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when the prosecution questioned Henry, instead of beginning the case against Willie, he asked Henry about Willie, whether Willie was his real brother, where he was born, really? why there was no record of Willie's birth, whether he was a full brother, hmm. and finally, how Henry could explain the difference in the two brothers' appearances. It, you know, if William had really been born of the same parents as you, yeah. why do you guys look so sure. different? But this is what they're doing in court. Right. In the final week of the trial, prosecutor Alexander Simpson met with reporters and told them that he would, quote, move for a mistrial in the case, end quote. Mm. He said he had proof that members of the jury had been guilty of impropriety. Really? He accused the jury members of sleeping during evidence, <laughs> receiving telephone calls and visitors without official witnesses, and openly boasting of their bias against the prosecution. Wow. The next day, he presents his case to the judge, who, after thinking it over during his lunch hour, said, nah, you're not getting a mistrial. <laughs> <laughs> Drop mic. <laughs> yeah. For 24 days, the jurors in the case heard from the pig lady, the brothers, the cousin, as well as Frances herself. Frances and her two brothers had the means and the motive, but the jury didn't believe the pig woman. Mm. And after just five hours of deliberation, all three are found innocent of the murder of Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills. Wow. And this 101-year-old case is still listed as unsolved. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Now, most believe that the older, less attractive wife, Frances, murdered her husband and his lover. Right. But again, it was a case of the haves and the have-nots. The haves thought the pastor was planning the parsnips with the lowlife, and he got exactly what he deserved. After the trial was over, Francis filed a lawsuit against the New York Daily Mirror, the paper that stirred up the case the second time around. And she won her case, and the amount was rumored to be $3 million. Jeez. Or in today's money, $51.5 million. Wow. wow, wow, wow. Francis never married again. She died on December 19th, 1942, at the age of 68. She was buried right next to her late husband, Edward Hall, in Brooklyn, New York. Wow. Her brother, Willie, died 11 days later. Really? And what about the old pig woman, <laughs> Jane Gibson? Well, she died of cancer not long after Francis and her brothers were found not guilty of murder. There's actually an urban legend that she haunts the area and can be summoned by driving down the road where Edward and Eleanor were murdered, turning off the car, flashing your lights three times and screaming, pig lady! <laughs> and she'll be in your rearview mirror. <laughs> It's great. <laughs> Today, the famous home at 23 Nickel Avenue is the home of the dean of Douglas College at Rutgers University. Oh, wow. It's right up the hill. Okay. And strangely enough, F. Scott Fitzgerald's third novel, The Great Gadsby, was published in 1925. Both Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda followed the scandalous case of Edward and Eleanor very closely, mm -hmm. which would later be described in the press as, quote, the murder of the decade, end quote. Wow. Now, The Great Gatsby was set in the year 1922, the year of the murders, and some think that's a coincidence, and some are convinced he based some of his story on Edward, Eleanor, and Francis. Yeah. Now, 100 years later, still unsolved, I did read that all of the transcripts from both grand juries is available to the public, and there are a few sleuths who've begun to pour through them. So what do you think? 
Did Frances have her husband murdered? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if she did, she never served time for she it. Was. But that is the case of the Hall Mills murders. And don't forget the pig lady. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. Have you read any good books lately? Or have you listened to any good books? All of the Sex and Lies series books, as well as the Jane Doe series, are available on Audible and iTunes. Hotter than hell in half of Alabama, the Sex and Lies series begins with Sex, Lies, and Sweet Tea. There are nine books to listen to in that series alone. Left as a newborn to die in a dumpster, she has no name. Tossed from foster home to foster home, she has no family. With no known past, she's deemed a perfect fit for a task force Washington denies exists. A selective assassin for the United States government, Jane Doe tracks down known terrorists on domestic soil. The Jane Doe books have been called a bit military, a bit assassin, and a bit genius. Start the new year by listening to a good book by me, Chris Calvert, on Audible or iTunes. Or if you'd like to read, go to chriscalvert.com and download some free books. And thanks for being a listener of Hitch to Homicide. The Pig Lady. The Pig Lady. <laughs> Jeez. Drive down the lane, flash your light. Wow. Pig Lady. That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> I, still to this day, I read a more uh, current article. Mm hmm. That church basically divides the line between the very wealthy side of town in New Brunswick and the still very poor side of town. Really? Still? Still does. Wow. Wow. Well, God bless the pig lady. (laughs) God bless the pig lady. (laughs) I'm telling the truth. Yeah, exactly. Swear to God, I'm telling the truth. All right. Well, let's go ahead. I could say bless your heart to her. But Oh, bless the pig woman's (laughs) heart. Bless all their hearts. Let's, Let's do a little bless your heart. All right, I got four of them for you today. Four seems to be the sweet spot. Yeah, it's just long (laughs) enough. Not too many, not too few. The first one I'm going to call, that's not me. All right. Okay. Two officers in Detroit, Michigan, were demonstrating their patrol cars fell on a locating system to children of a neighborhood during an (laughs) educational lesson. A man named R.C. Gatlin walked up to them and asked them about the process. Mm-hmm. To show him how the system worked, they asked him to give him the, you know, his ID or driver's license as part of the demonstration. When they placed the driver's license in the system, they found out the man was wanted for robbery committed two years ago previously and then arrested him. And that, children, is yeah. how the police work. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is how the new system works, kids. Oh, Lord have mercy. All right, number two, blame it on Fido. All right, let's be honest. There. There has likely been at least one time in your life when you had to make a silly excuse to justify something you did. Dog ate the homework? Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully it wasn't as stupid as the following story. While being handcuffed after leading police on a high-speed chase, Relaford Cooper III claimed that it was his dog driving the car. <laughs> What's even worse than the excuse? There wasn't a dog in the car. <laughs> let scotty drive the car (laughs) exactly Uh, and i probably scotty has been in his heated bed behind my chair here the entire time it's it's a little cool outside today Yeah. so that's the old saying let sleeping dogs lie Mm -hmm. all right all right number three dang it dang it 
In Tulsa, Oklahoma, suspected shoplifter Jacob Wise sneakily removed security tags from clothes that he was planning to steal from the store, okay? Okay. Well, the alarm went off anyway as Wise strolled through the exit. Why? Well, apparently Wise wasn't as wise as his name suggests. (laughs) He had put the removed tags in his pocket. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, bless his heart. Supposed to put those someplace else, Uh, I guess. And number four, the last one. Now you see me. Well, you get the idea. (laughs) One day in 1995, a middle-aged man robbed two Pittsburgh banks in broad daylight. Okay. He didn't wear a mask or any sort of disguise. Okay. He also smiled at the surveillance cameras before walking out of the bank. Yeah. (laughs) Later that night, the cops arrested a shocked MacArthur Wheeler. When they showed him the surveillance tape, Wheeler stared in disbelief. Quote, but I wore the juice, he mumbled. The what? Apparently, Wheeler truly believed that rubbing lemon juice on his skin would make him invisible to the video cameras. Bless his heart. (laughs) He was arrested and convicted. That's like the guys who put Sharpie all over their faces. Um, Lemon juice. Yeah. So just remember, lemon juice will not make you invisible. Good for your tea. Good for your water. Not good for robbing banks. Not good for robbing banks. (laughs) So that's it for this week. Aww. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a menu there. Just fill out the form, send it in. You can also suggest a case. That's my amazing husband out there. That's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. (laughs) Bye, y'all.